When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we finish up with part two of our Q&A session with Ann Jandernaw. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 240. Welcome to another episode of the Bird Shop Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Hopefully you caught part one last week with Ann Jandernaw. Today we're going to finish up our Q&A session, our annual conversation on grouse and woodcock habitat and hunting with Ann Jandernaw. We're going to get right into our conversation today. I don't know about you all, but I have got rough grouse on the brain today and probably every day for about the next two or three months. We'll see how things go. Hopefully we have a nice long window of primetime hunting. I got out yesterday, actually, September 27th for my first real effort where I had a window of time and got to run both dogs and work some cover. And it's kind of a tough time of year mentally a little bit. The urge to hunt is very high, but the conditions are far from ideal. And if you've done much early season rough grouse hunting, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But everything is a tune-up of sorts for when the conditions change in a hurry and we all of a sudden find ourselves in the middle of the primetime hunting conditions. So it's fun to get out and explore and see the woods and watch everything change before your eyes. That's part of the fun. It's part of what makes the fleeting days of October and November so exciting and worthwhile to be out there. Had a good hunt yesterday. The dogs and I found some birds and I'll share with you quick hot tip from yesterday's hunt. There was a bit of a raspberry pattern going on in the woods. By that, I mean raspberry patches. Look up the plant rubus or raspberry if you're not familiar. These patches are always good to key in on because they grow in areas that 
are typically good for grouse for other reasons. But this early season, I do like to focus on rubus or raspberry patches. Typically find them in and around clear cuts, young clear cuts. If there's an opening in the canopy, let's say the clear cut is regenerating and it is regenerating poorly in one particular spot, that opening may become an opening for a raspberry patch. And I think the young birds, that's sort of brooding cover. They sort of spend their summer there and they are in and around those patches. There's probably bugs and berries, obviously, in there. And they're keying on those this time of year. And yesterday I went to a spot specifically because I knew there were some of these patches along a trail. And then eventually I would work my way over to a 10-year-old aspen cut that I don't really want to spend a lot of time in there this time of year, but I did I did a little drive-by and saw some sections of it, and it didn't look all that bad. It's a really, really nice cut that was regenerating, and it didn't look incredibly thick. So I decided to hunt there, and it paid off. There were birds. We found them, and it was pretty predictable that the birds were in and around these patches of raspberry. So that's my little tip for you this week. You may be well aware of that, but if not, Learn how to identify those little raspberry patches, and when you see them, pay attention to them. Work the dog around them. Slow down. Take your time going through them. Birds are hanging around that stuff. All right. Hopefully all of you are out there enjoying yourself, staying safe, having a great hunting season so far. And with that in mind, let's talk a little bit more grouse and woodcock habitat and hunting. And welcome into the conversation and back to the Bird Shop Podcast and Jandrana. All right, we're going to move on to some more habitat-specific questions. Um, and this one actually could have gone in maybe in the miscellaneous one, but this was, I think this was kind of a, it was a neat question. So you're going for a magical all-star grouse hunt. Describe the cover and dog. And then in it was sort of in parentheses that any place or dog ever. So I think what he's asking is sort of describe your favorite cover and one of your favorite dogs and what that looked like, you know, any, any time and place throughout your history. Well, I like to hunt when it's colder. Yeah. I hate hot weather. And I think the dogs do a heck of a lot better and the scenting's good for them. For me, having guided in the past so much, I'd get done with the hunting season with all the clients. I finally had a chance to really just, just enjoy my dogs. Um, and one of them was with Kenzie. And Kenzie is a black and white setter. And he's got, he's, he goes everywhere with me. He's getting older now. He's uh, about 11 right now. But this is when he was like seven. And we were hunting and we basically tracked and tracked and tracked these birds. And I, after a while, I'm thinking, what the heck is going on? And it was through your typical um, little older aspen. I'm talking like 12, 13-year-old aspen, but with mm. a lot of hazel brush mixed. We're on the downward edge of a – it's pretty flat, um, but you, know, you could see it sloped down into the you know the conifers, and there was some tag alder, and there was a black spruce, and a, there was a patch of tamarack, and – and then there's little fingers that sort of came up into the cover a little bit. And I like that when I see mm-hmm. it sort of reach up in because the grouse will sort of gravitate to that because it creates a funnel. 
and uh, and we're working. And he's one of these dogs that he gets really low in cat crawls. Uh, and uh, you'll see him lift his head and wind. I mean, and we've done this so much together that, you know, he knows I'm taking pictures. So it's like, I think he thinks, okay, I got to pose a little nicer. (laughs) But, you know, basically it was just a typical late season cover. And then he went on point, a solid point. And he, the whole demeanor changed from I'm picking up scent to, and we're going to track it to, I am not moving. I am stone. I won't move. And up ahead was a hazel brush patch. And so I thought, okay, that's not too big of a patch. I think I'll try to come around on the low side a little bit. And eventually, I went by me coming around was shifting the birds in front of him, that scent. And you could see him turn his head just a little bit. I thought, well, this is interesting. And I couldn't care if I got a bird or not. I just, it was fine. So I'm watching him shift his head away from me to the left because I was on the right. I thought, okay, I'm going to double back and go behind the dog and let me. I can't see these birds and I couldn't hear them either because there had been enough moisture that the leaves that had fallen from the fall, were, everything was quiet pretty much. A couple times I thought I heard something, but I wasn't sure. So I, I went back around the backside of Kenzie, and he's still just on point. And I shipped up on the opposite side. Next thing you know, I see his eyes and head just turned, just like, you know, it's like a mm-hmm. compass. Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah, yeah. so cool watching yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then after a little bit, he's on point, and he goes, like, get it over with. Yeah, hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> he literally cast aside. Well, about that time, I start laughing, and then the birds all go up. Oh, <laughs> 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 the dog turned and looked at me, and if it could have flipped a finger, it would have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just, you know, no, I didn't get a bird, but I had more fun watching how the pressure I put on the birds was making him look here, then making him sort of look over here. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this is fun. <laughs> and so, you know, there was a bunch of birds in there, and it was pretty cool. And they did stagger their flush, and he did everything he was supposed to. And uh, and I thought, you know, and I was just enjoying the moment. And I'm one of these people, you know, I looked at him. I said, we'll save this for another day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm back here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll try not to do this. <laughs> and off we went, and we eventually did find find some more birds, and we did. I did down a bird for him, and uh, and you know the thing is, he he I walk up and he's proudly has it and everything, and he gives it to me, and I sat down, and you know he just sort of he's one of these dogs. He wants to be with you, and he's really a companion. Um, and he just leaned up against me, and he couldn't. And there's the bird down there on the ground and I just set it down and the bird was important to him, but I was more important than the bird. So that was a big deal to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh. uh, I love that. That's, that is one of the, it's, it's like a subtle 
or simple pleasure of, of hunting dogs when or pointing dogs, you got a dog on point and you walk in and the birds don't flush and you're, you know, you're kind of wandering around doing this thing. You playing the chess game as we talked about and like the little things that the dog, you know, they'll kind of move their eyes or, or subtle shift of their head and they're kind of giving you these clues. And it's just, I mean, yeah, that, that makes for some memorable moments in the field. Well, it does. And then, you know, as you definitely get older, some of us get to the point that it's all those little pieces that just came together that's huge. Yeah. And that makes the moment. And, uh, you know, there's times when I've been with clients and and we we had a pattern that we ran on one particular cut. And we knew it very well. And we always said we knew we would push the birds by going this way then we would literally push them again. And what we were doing is just shifting them into the hazel brush patch. And then they had hunted with me so long that Ron would go one way, Dave would go another way. And then it was left for me and the dog to bust them up. And I'd holler, we got a point and then I'd holler another bird going up and they're on the other. It's big page hazel brush patch, huge. And bird up headed left. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> straight away <laughs> you know I literally I'm knowing them which way the birds are flushing and that doggone point something else is going to happen <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you know those were you know those were some really neat memories you know that I think about but I think that one of the funnier ones too is you know and they talk about the cover this was all really nice cover I love hazel brush patches. Um, people have other patches of probably different types of shrub components mm-hmm. that they like. This is what I deal with here. Uh, and there's other areas that you'll find the hazel brush patch. But, uh, you know, it's just seeing everything come together. But seeing the cover is beautiful. The floor is nice. The the food sources are there. The density is right. Um you know, people say it looks birdie. Oh, yeah, it was birdie. Um, but it, it's having that memory that you take. It's the hunts that leave you with memories are the ones that, when you talk about this, is that you're going for a magical. There was one other one, and it was Bean's last hunt, and he was my first L. Hugh Pointer. Mm. Uh, and he turned into a tremendous tremendous grouse dog and this dog just had an incredible nose and the last point that dog ever had he i was on the other side the client it was too thick for the client and so i put him in a different area and the bird did come out where it was supposed to but what i saw was me looking in to the, the conifer the light was streaming in and that was the way the bird was going to go was where the light streamed in because that was the hole and Bean was on the other side watching the bird on a stump and my camera was the battery was dead and that was the last point that dog ever had Wow! and the client missed it and which I couldn't have cared that was you don't get a picture set like that with the grouse, the lighting, the dog in the background. So you would, could you literally could line it up. That was the last memory I had 
of his point. And he came out of that brush, which was very thick, and he was lame. Mm. And that was the end of the hunt. Wow. Because I won't run them when they're like that. And so we, we went back, and and that was the last hunt he ever did. Uh, but he was an incredible dog. Yeah, that's a that's a heck of a high note to end on. Yes. That's, yes. Like you described, that is, that's, that's kind of the pinnacle of dog on point in the background, bird in between you and the dog, you know, from a hunting mm-hmm. standpoint, but also just from a visual. I mean, there's, there's nothing cooler than that. Oh, the lighting was, was, that's the part. It was something out of a painting. Yeah. Uh, so it, you get to see a lot of stuff like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, in the grouse woods, I think that's part of the magic of the grouse woods is how beautiful the dogs look working the colors the smell the little things that you take as pleasure in enjoying this isn't a big you know it's it's just magical uh you know so yeah i i couldn't agree more and the the more i do it the more those little things stand out to me and mm-hmm. as I'm sure they do you and that you're oh, right. Yeah. That, that's part of it. Part of it all. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Next question. Hunter asks what age class Aspen is most productive and what size is that? I won't want to answer, but I'll let Ann, Ann take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone's going to have their own opinion based on, well, I imagine his arms are bigger than mine. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. He said, he said, is that forearm thick, thigh thick? Yeah, so that that does vary based on the individual. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, two and a half at my wrist, maybe three. <laughs> um, you know, we'll just talk about what I'm used to. Um, cause Hunter, I don't know what you look like. So <laughs> I, I actually do, but, Oh, you do. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to steal Hunter's question, but I, I wonder if, cause what I want to say is it depends, right? I mean, Aspen, right. Aspen, yeah. Aspen size and thickness varies based on soil type and region. Yep. And there's so much into it depends with that question. It, but I wonder if if another question is, and again, I apologize to Hunter. We'll we'll try to answer his question in the way that he asked it. But does productivity depend on Aspen class or Aspen size, or are there just other factors that that lead to productivity? Meaning, are there conifers nearby? Is there hazel brush? You know, there's so many other factors other than just what size is the Aspen. Yeah, and you tend to when you say Aspen class. It's, let's put it this way, aspen is highly used by grouse. Yes. That's just a fact. And it's used for different times of the year. But there's certain times of the year, being late season, and once these birds start to understand, especially the birds of the year, understand the need for escape habitat, which then gives you your uh, edges, or gives you your clumps within it, is that, it's the makeup of the cut that can either be a desert or it can provide everything that bird needs in a small area. And what I would tell you is, is that drumming counts will teach you a lot about what's great aspen. And it's not just where you find one bird. It's where you hear multiple males drumming. Hmm. 
That's going to tell you a lot about the cover, and then it's going to tell you a lot about the cover nearby. So you find a pocket of multiple males drumming, then look at the habitat around it within about a mile to a mile and a half. Because that means there is a surplus of high-quality habitat? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And and that's, you know, I mean, I, I realize I deflected it to that, but as far as what he's asking is, because we all are of different sizes, is that it boils down to stem density. And stem density is going to boil down to growth rate, soils, and everything. But each one of those places, whether it's sandy soil or whether it's, you know, clay, heavy clay, or not so much, or mix, or whatever, there's going to be a time in that in that cycle for that grouse cover that's going to give you the right stem density. And I'm thinking you're basically looking at stem density, and I'm going to talk more about a guy than my shoulders, is basically you're looking at them about three to four feet apart, roughly, in places. It doesn't have to be totally consistent across there, but you don't want a whole bunch of of, uh, grass in there either. These aren't pheasants. Uh, You can have little lowland swales that go through there. Um, And the more the cut is broke up into lowland and the thick cover that lowland can give you, the harder it'll be to hunt because then that gives you too many escape areas. And once those birds learn to run, well, I'll just peel off to the right or I'll take 20 steps off to the left and I'm down a funnel and I, goodbye, I'm gone. Yeah. So you don't have a chance to set up any strategy to hunt that. It's really hard sometimes. If you only have a couple, that's not too bad. But if it's just that roll into a pothole and roll out of it and roll into it again, that becomes difficult. But as far as I think it boils down to, you know, a lot of people want to say beer can. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Even that, for me, sometimes is getting a little bit big. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's more about, a, and you'll know this, what I'm talking about. It's about evaluating the cover. You can have an older cut and still have part of it that's great cover. You know, just because it's 14 years old doesn't mean, oh, it's shot, it's over the hills. I mean, I'll take a look at that in late season. doesn't mean there isn't a stretch of it that could be still good. So it's being able to read the cover, but... I mean, I think it's how far apart the trees are because, and what it's comprised of. And when you look at the canopy, is the canopy full early season or is it closed in? But then also look at what's on the ground. And your plants on the ground will help dictate whether or not the birds will utilize it. If it's all weeds and you don't see any bunchberries or strawberries or these small little plants that are like the salads of the woods for these birds. What are they going to find in there other than that's, I, I, okay, there's nothing in here I can eat. I'm yep. going to go and find someplace else. So too much light, too big of weeds and big plants. Just right light. It's sort of like the Goldilocks scenario. Some like it this way and that way, but the grouse are very fussy. They want it just so because the more they have of those areas that, they can feed and their shrub component that they can go from one to the other, you know, the better off they are. So I honestly think when you look at the cuts on any map, you need to look at 
these are places you're going to go look at. Yes. You hope hope the habitat's nice, but you need to evaluate it. These are starting points. And you need figuring out the year of it or knowing the year of it. You basically then have the ability to say, okay, this falls in the range that I want to look at, and I'm going to check them off my list. But you're going to start, if I was you, I'd start at the low part, swing through there about, oh, I'd say, uh, oh, I would say almost full gun range. Half to, half to three, well, why don't you say three-quarter gun range from the conifer? From the lowland, yeah. Okay. Yeah, from the lowland edge, swinging up through there, because that's, that's easy for people to think about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the Hail Mary shot. It's the shot that you're pretty sure you can make. Um, And uh, it's not the type of shot that you're going to try to get it off as fast as you can, because, you know, it sort yeah. of startled you. <laughs> uh, but it's that. And then swing up through there. But, you know, once you know that area, you will go into that area, and you will do like what I did, and probably what you do too, you know, is that you're going to say, where are they at right now? Where am I, where's my dog going to pick up scent? And then once you've done that, maybe once or twice, okay, they're usually about here, Mm -hmm. but they always escape over to here. So let's go to the back of the cut because I know it's getting pounded and I'm going to slide into the back from the high side and drop down and then come back, reverse it all. Um, and you're going to rotate what the birds are expecting. They're expecting everyone to come from the front and go that place. You know, it'll look like a cow trip. Do the opposite of what other people are doing because they'll always push them to the back. And then you need to go to the back and work to the front. And then you need to get between the bird and the cover they're seeking to go to. Yep. Excellent. I don't know. Did, did we get it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I, I got a couple things to throw in there. Um, one, I, I had put a note that we're going to hit later, but you kind of talked about it there. You had a short video on your YouTube channel about big leaf aster. It was really the idea that you're talking about all aspen cuts are not created equal. You know, one is not necessarily the same as another, even if they're the same age and in the same, they could be down the road from each other and they're not exactly the same. So to your point, an aspen cut on a map is a place to go look and see. It's a place, Mm -hmm. it's a starting point, just as you said. And once you get in there, then we're then we're boots on the ground. Then we're using our eyes, our ears, the dog, everything to observe and mm-hmm. see if, if that has what it what it is that we're looking for. And well, I did want to say, I think Hunter was asking a good question in that I think what he was, and I'm speculating a little bit here, and he can text me and tell me if if this is right. But I think he was he could have used rather than body parts, which do vary from from person to person. He could have said beer can or pop can, and I think he was saying. What kind of aspen size-wise are we looking for rather than saying, am I looking for 9- or 10-year-old aspen because there's so much variation in He's, he's talking ages. density. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's the thing is that – let me see here. Hold on. Just bear with me, folks. I'm going to grab something. All good. All good. Tape measure. Tape measure. Here we go. Yes, tape measure. I want to say this right. Okay. Okay, so I have a pop can, which is pretty close to a beer can here. Yep, Mountain Dew. So it's about two and three quarter. That's not bad. You start getting four, it's getting definitely big. Three and a half in a lot of areas can be big. 
three and a half on three on sandy soil can start really thinning. I like personally just a hair under beer can size, which is beer can size is almost two and three quarter or Mountain Dew size is two and three quarters. So, so like two and shrinking. a half inches, two, two and a half yeah, inches, two and a half inches. Now, okay. We're not looking at the stump. Find out where 4.5 feet is uh, at, you know, is, uh, is your chest, height. Chest and shoulder area, roughly. Yeah. Well, if you're really tall, it's too much. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Okay. Four and 4. a half 5. feet off the ground. It's called okay. DBH, diameter breast height for ah, a forester. Okay. And so that is what the DBH that you're looking at. No, that's not of, I've got four or five like this. You want pretty much 60% to be like that. Uh, and don't judge the edges of the cut. Get in and then judge it. Your edges are always weedy because they receive more sunlight. Correct. Yeah. And that's also where you usually pick up more ticks, too. Mm. It's right on the edge because a lot of times there's foxtail. Um, so there's that. And so basically go and look at that. And basically it's it's enough that you can just walk through them without banging your shoulders around a lot. Or you maybe just have to turn a little bit. Uh, they start getting where you could put two guys next to each other. It's too, it's getting there. It's thin, thinning right? out. Yep. Yep. It's not the broomsticks and the little whips that are, that are smacking us in the face. It's, and it's not the thigh thick aspen that are spreading apart right. somewhere, somewhere in between. And again, you can, the minute you start labeling stuff like you can really, it doesn't have to be this complicated. Aspen is Aspen to a certain extent, but it's, we're looking at the, the entire picture within that cut. Right. It's it's a consistency, and consistency is what gives these birds habitat. All right, excellent. Okay, next question: What should I target as late season? I think I've mistyped this. What should I target as late season food in Lower Michigan? And then the this person added that they're not finding much hazel brush, which you and I talk about all the time. Um, some of it you're going to get into uh, the hardwoods. Sometimes the ones that have been thinned pretty well recently or before they get thinned on that upper edge, you're looking at uh, ironwood catkins. Yeah. And there's other shrub components over there that um, that basically, uh, I can't think of it. Dogwood's going to be gone because that, that's yeah. going to be... All the, look, there's another one. I can't think of what the name is. It like Just drawing a freaking blank. Um. <laughs> But it's all still going to boil down to density. You know, density is where the birds are, and the birds will, you know, drift out of these areas a little bit into getting, you know, food. So you still have to have the right density for them to survive, but they've gone into a smaller area. But ironwood is also something that's below the bridge. And those catkins, there's three catkins on them, uh, typically, and the birds will come and feed at the tops. Of there and there's it's a junk hardwood, mm-hmm. uh, and they really like that. I know that, but I know other people hunt different things. I have not spent time, even though the first grouse I ever saw was in the Ward Hills in the Manistee National Forest, not too far from Round Lake. Uh, I spent a lot of time there growing up, but I was too young to. You know, I knew what logging was and I knew what log trucks were, but I didn't know, you know, the uh, forest 
I hadn't even gone to forestry school then. Um, I was just a kid that wanted to be out in the woods. <laughs> but uh, I would say I can't answer that question because, you know, other than I know if I was hunting there, I'd be first thing would be density. Yeah. I would be going off of and then casting and letting my dogs in, learning where the dog is getting birdie and then identifying what's in those areas. Okay. I'm going to jump over the next one and and do the one after that because it's similar to this one. So what cover do you focus on for grouse in November? And he said cover, might, you know, you could just as well say food essentially, but grouse in November in the upper Great Lakes. So similar, um, mm-hmm. you kind of touched on a lot of those things, but anything else you're looking for in November? Uh, placement of my conifer in mm. distance. Uh, if you have an area that, you need pockets of conifer because you got to think about it. Okay, all the leaves are gone. Uh, and anything moving, any prey can see it. So basically, you're looking for pockets. So it's like, think about it this way. It's light, dark, light, dark. So I'm in this, think about if you were a grouse. Okay, you're in this cover. You're looking out. Okay, I want to get over to here. That's thicker hazel brush. I'm going to go to that. And I need to get from point A to B. And you know how they, you see them run or they quietly take steps like you don't see me mm-hmm. type thing. Um, and so it's really breaking down the cover aspect. And a lot of them, like I've mentioned before on this, on your podcast, Nick, is that you are back into the habitat of the male. And their food needs to be all within a very short distance walking distance and they need cover to walk and sometimes they will fly back or you know or they might fly a little bit but they're basically everything's one-stop shopping yeah. the the hazel brush the ironwood the buds off of other trees whether it's male aspen or you know I had birds out here budding on cherry trees last year and there was other ones on aspen, and I saw them budding on other trees. So, and then watching them, you know, dance around up in the up at the tops, and then all of a sudden, one by one, they peeled off into different directions, and that was all within one flight. These weren't huge flights; these were just yeah. nice glides. So, when you think about it, and you see stuff like that, these birds aren't traveling you know, doing massive flights, they're conserving energy because they're, they don't have much fat on them. So everything needs to be one-stop shopping. Everything needs to be low-calorie burn-off. If we can be, we can stay calm, we can get from one place to the next, and we got a place to burrow in the snow. So you're going to look at a little bit of an open area or open part of a trail that they can dive into. Um, and you know, you're going to find an area where they can very quickly be secure. So, you know, it's, it's the Aspen cut was nearby, but these guys were utilizing the tops of the hardwoods and some of the sub story hardwoods to eat. And they were doing that. And I think what was interesting is, is that the ones that did use the Aspen at that time, at least in this area, where I was at was that it was spread too far apart and they were like sitting ducks. But when you get a bird into 
the outer branches of like a yellow birch or you know the ironwood or whatever and they're it's hard for a bird of prey to dive through all that stuff mm. to get at them yeah. um so the more thicker the tops are the better off it is for them because a lot of times when you look at aspen male aspen trees uh you'll see that the ones that they're budding on they're a little bit out in the open there you know and they're usually trying to eat between that time where they're the hawks aren't busy, but the owls haven't come out yet. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's going to be a mix of cover. But if you know where the male grouse is, you can learn very quickly what his habitat is. And you can go back to those areas and look. And, and granted, these birds will move. The hens will move from one male to the next. But this is where the hens are going to cover you back up. And you'll see them in a group. And the and you'll see the males don't get along with each other. So when you learn these areas, then you have a starting point for late season. And listen to the drumming in the fall, because those are juveniles that are putting pressure on the males. And so it forces the older males to drum to mm. establish that this is my spot. But then a little bit later in the fall, you might have the juvenile trying to Drum. And I've seen some of the dumbest places, you know, right on a stump in the middle open. I'm like, oh, good grief, this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but but you, you just you just basically watch and listen to what you're around because those are the keys that you're going to grab and put them together to unlock all of this. Um, and you start reading the woods. I mean, grouse hunting really is about a couple things: reading your dogs and reading the woods. Mm-hmm. And once you watch the patterns of what the birds do, all of a sudden, it's like you're anticipating the shift before it happens. And you're also watching the dog to when it cues in on the scent of what's happening and what the bird is doing as well. And next thing you know, you can start positioning yourself for the shift because you know it's going to come, that things are going to shift you know, because those birds late season, they're headed for escape routes. Establish what the escape routes are, establish where they like to feed, and watch your dog because you're gonna dog's gonna tell you, look where he's picking up scent, where he's doubling back, where you might get a hold on a point or a little bit of flagging. Like, I'm not sure, you know, but I think I'm pretty sure there was a bird here. Look at where he starts casting again and where he picks it up again. You need to connect the dots to visualize where that bird is and what it's doing and looking ahead to associate what it's wanting to get to. Yeah. Got it. So, again, never a bad thing to be looking for that high-quality habitat where you have all of the elements in a small area, you know, and in fact, like that's a good way to prioritize what you're looking for. But just as you get later into the season and food sources become less and less available, that becomes even more, more important that you need this high quality habitat, conifers, escape cover, food cover, everything in a, in a small area. Yep. It's one stop shopping. Yep. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. 
New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And I had, I just, uh, I crossed another question off our list because you had done another video on, on your YouTube channel about where to go when it rains, which is very similar to this kind of cover that we're describing, which again, this is a place that I look for all the time. And and I would encourage folks to go look at the video. You basically got an Aspen cut of some, you know, prime age class. doesn't really matter but you have, it It drops down, maybe it's a little bit of a slope, and you have these fingers of conifers or, you know, black spruce or cedar. Anytime you have these fingers sticking, jutting out into the slope of an aspen cut, I mean, you, as you point out in the video, you've just got so many edges there and so much variation and diversity in, in the cover. That's the kind of spot I'm looking for every day, and it just so happens to be really the kind of spot you want to be in when the weather gets gets nasty mm-hmm. or it gets later into the season, right? Right. Okay, so what is a good age range for more hardwood cuts like we see in the Northeast? And I think he mentioned Pennsylvania. So when aspen is, is less of a component, what other things are you looking for and what age range might you be looking for? Northeast is a lot of times composed of less aspen, but more maple. So you're, when I was out in Maine proofing maps one year, and I was riding around with the forester, uh, we spent the day together and going through their lands, going through all everything I'd mapped, uh, and looking at the habitat. I found, and then, what he did is we went back to the office because, you know, when you're dealing with a big, huge forestry company, that inventory data is proprietary. That's actually one of their largest assets besides the land and the timber. It's what's on it and how it's all inventoried. But they said, find the cuts that you want and we'll tell you the age. You know, we'll look it up on the maps. So I was making waypoints in that and we eventually went back and I had come across (laughs) some different places that I really liked. 
And some of it was aspen and some of it wasn't aspen. Uh, and some of it was, you know, had more of a maple to it. But what I am look, looked at was actually the cuts run a little older in some of the places out there. Um, and the best floors I found were about two to three to sometimes four years older than what we normally are associating with. And part of it's their ground is very gravelly in places. And so when you think about, did I say out west? I meant to say out east. <laughs> but <laughs> correct me. Whack. <laughs> out east. Um, so in Maine, they basically, you come off those hillsides and they're gravelly and then they flare and then they drop into some pretty decent uh, ground before it goes into the wetland. So some of those, you're not hunting way up in the hills of the mountains, so to speak. You're hunting right about the flare where it starts to level out. Uh, so those are the areas that I was looking for. And that's where I actually found, you know, grouse signs. And I found decent floors and covers. So they're bands out there. They're basically bands. Now, those birds will sometimes go into the beach and eat. And they'll eat off of uh, different, you know, uh, buds and things like that. But I was out there for a very short time. And it wasn't during the fall. But I would focus on finding the bands that are between the lowland and the highland, identifying that, and then the cuts that you have in there. And basically, I think part of it, too, is, you know, how fast does their trash after logging, you know, decompose? Mm. That's another thing. It's uh, when you have rocks in a more of a rocky soil, you know, think about nice soil. It's got a darker tone to it it heats up and gets warm and then you start to get a canopy and you still got that soil getting warm you know soils like a little bit warmer and it forms a better climate for consistent cover your soil's big deal out there and you need to find areas where you have more soil less rock um, and that's can, something we've talked about before. So you're referring to the, the greenhouse effect. So when you cut, yes. you've got sunlight coming down. And then as the early successional forest ages, it reaches a point where it actually develops enough of its own canopy to create this yep. greenhouse effect underneath, holding warmth, holding moisture, and decomposing yep. the trash on on the ground, which is what you're talking about. Yep. And you don't have those rocks really, you mean, think about a root system trying to get spread out in the rocks. Yeah. <laughs> Hard. You know, it's hard. And so then you're not going to get the consistency of the tree, you know, the sure. tree yeah. stem density. So that's like a, um, that's like a, a spiraling effect where the root system can't spread and cover as much and the rocks are keeping it cooler and lessening the greenhouse effect anyways. Yeah. No, I just, uh, in so much of it is maple. And the one thing about maple here, and that's why part of it, I think when you look at the migration of the woodcock, that's a great area for them to come through because if you ever kick the leaf litter away from under a maple area, it looks like warm bedding. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't decompose very quickly either. So that's why you don't see very much, uh, you know, plant growth. Yep. I mean, there's too much. It can't, little plants can't get established. It's right. really in some ways a desert, you know, and, uh, you know, so it's it's finding those areas that have the little plants, but also finding the areas where the soil is better. And your soil is not going to be good at 3,000 feet. Good for syrup, good for woodcock, 
not as good for grouse cover. Maples. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Last, speaking of soil, uh, last one in the habitat-specific section is when looking for new areas while e-scouting, how can you determine soil types? So that's the end of the question. What resources do you use to look at soil types? And then I suppose within that, what kind of soil are you looking for, which we've talked about a little bit before? Well, here's what I would tell you. I don't go and look for the soil type. I look for the tree that goes on specific soil types. You know, certain trees will grow in certain areas. Mm -hmm. Other trees will not. Your hardwood isn't going to flourish where it holds a lot of moisture. Um, And your aspen can only tolerate, it can tolerate it a little bit better than the hardwood, but not that great either. So it's sort of stuck in between. In the Great Lakes area here, we truly do have bands in a lot of places that you get a little null, and then you see the cover switch from aspen to hardwood very quickly. And so those aspen need soil that their root system can spread out because their job is to intertwine with each other and basically they sucker from the root system and they just keep spreading out and that's how they regenerate. You know, once you lop off the main tree, the next crop comes up through the roots. I mean, they will flower, you know, flowering catkins and all that. The catkins spread seeds and, you know, in the springtime you see them and you think they're cottonwoods the way it is. I mean, sometimes the road is actually white on the edges where the vehicles go by and there's all these flowering catkins <laughs> piled up. But, um, spring snow <laughs> but it's uh it's looking at the soil and realizing and looking at the trees and saying oh maples are pretty much growing here the sugar maples are up high the red maples are down low um they'll intersperse so when you transition from the aspen to the hardwoods, you're going to see a mix of aspen. You're going to see possibly a little red maple. Sometimes the red maple will be down around the low areas. It's one of the first usually to turn red. Um, and then you got the higher crowns will be yellow with the aspen. Not not the aspen, but the uh, it's a different yellow for the sugar maple. And then you have the aspen bands. Um, and if you ever get a chance, look at imagery that has leaf on in the fall. Mm-hmm. The Clam Lake area had a really good leaf imagery layer on Google Earth back quite a few years ago. Years ago, And it was really interesting to look at that and say, okay, oh, look at this aspen just sweep right around this hardwood. You get to see the bands. And then you can see the green from the conifer. So like black spruce, which gets the thick density, if something has the word blue, you know, like black ash, black spruce, lowland. Yeah. Yep. White ash, white spruce, upland. Cedar, lowland. You know, and so you've got your border habitat in lowland, which would be cedar, tamarack, black spruce, let's see, tag alder. Those are, those are your main lowland edges. Yeah. They're kind of likes moisture. They don't mind if they get their feet wet. I don't mind if they're standing in it for quite a while either. And that, and then you go to the aspen, and the aspen starts to blend with that. 
And the aspen says, I can get wet some, but I'm not going to stand around in this too much or I'll be stunted and I can't grow. We need to dry off a little bit, you know, but I can take what runs off from the hills or whatever and help funnel it down to the lower areas and I'll grow there. And then, oh, it's starting to get too high. The soil's getting a little different up here. I'm going to mix with the hardwoods and we'll form another thick band. And then eventually it gives up and says, okay, the hardwoods take over. And, and so, and in amongst all that, typically down at the lower levels, uh, you'll find that when there used to be a lot of water and streams and rivers and all that funneled through an area, uh, we're talking thousands of years ago, that basically there's gravel deposits in places. And then your, your, your hazel brush says, now I like that area. I'll take that and, you know, I'm not far from the lowland and I'm definitely not up in the upland for the most part, unless it's in a depression in the upland. And so your soil there is being each type of tree or shrub or small plant has certain characteristics that they like and need. You learn the plants you'll learn the relationship that they have and what their limits are of what they can have tolerate. And then you'll also pair this all together so that you can visualize, okay, so these plants, the strawberries, the bunch berries and all that can grow from the lowland through the aspen, but typically you don't see them in the hardwoods because there's such a leaf litter. There's more leaf litter in the hardwoods. The aspen leaf litter tends to decompose quickly because of the hothouse effect. And it just goes, buns right back into the soil. It nourishes everything and up comes the next crop year after year after year. Yeah. Unless you strip it out and go plant something else. So that's, I guess it's the best way I can describe it. I that that was awesome. That was awesome. What you <laughs> what you what you're really saying, you're seeing the soil through the trees. You know, you're seeing the you're seeing the soil and analyzing the soil type by looking at the vegetation, which is cool. And that's what I've begun to do, you know, in large part thanks to conversations I've had with you and other ones we've had on the podcast, just observing that, getting an understanding of the soil type based on the vegetation that grow, grows on and just recognizing those patterns. And you can do that if you're standing on a piece of ground looking at the trees in front of you, or you can do it via the imagery, like you said. So it's it's not necessarily you're, – you're just looking at imagery more so than you're going to look at some sort of soil – data layer, um, trying to gather anything that way you, you can see the soil type through the vegetation basically. Yep. It's, it's know the habitat. You'll know where to be. Yep. Habitat's key, you know, and then understand your year ranges and when things grow, when they, when they, it all ebbs and flows. It's not static. It is in a constant change. And, that's what these birds are, grouse are, and even woodcock for that matter. There's always a change in what they need, and it's finding, it's a niche. You know, when you look at a lot of the national forest, 3% is really all that's good for grouse. Early successional. Yep. Yeah. But it's also not even that. It's finding, it's, it's, it is that part, but it's finding, there's cuts, and then there's cuts. And I know you know what I mean, and it sounds like I'm trying to 
share some trade secret, but <laughs> it's not. It's the quality. It's what is around that cut. Yeah, it's yeah. what the birds are going to shift to. It's the age. Is it stagnant over here on the west because it's too old and it's starting to fall over and there's no food source? The iron ironwood's gone because maybe the county came through and said, oh, we're going to harvest it. You know, that's a junk tree. Let's get all rid of it. And they do that a lot of times. So that I can think of a specific band that I used to work the bottom part was perfect and it was narrow and there was really either birds went straight or they were going to peel to the right. If you, if they peeled to the left and went up the hill, they were wide open shots. And basically then, and you'd go, you know, Aspen, Aspen, Hazelbrush, bunch of Hazelbrush, mm. Aspen, Aspen, Hazelbrush. And then, you know, I'd shove someone up ahead. I was walking the edge where the, would start would start to flare up because I was trying to push the birds to the right. Yep. I put the dog in the middle. I put one on the trail, and then that guy stuck the other guy too close into the conifer. Poor guy never got shots. He shouldn't have <laughs> listened to the other guy. So <laughs> maybe <that laughs> finally I yelled at him. I said, said, "Just get over here and get behind the dog." <laughs> and I, and so it was like I'm blocking. And I was trying to force birds to the right, so I'm acting like a freaking dog. And the dog's doing the scent thing, and the clients are over or more in center and right. And and you know, I'd holler, "There's a hazelbrush patch up ahead." You know, so and so, one of you back this end, the other one get to the front. I'm going to send the dog in the middle. And it was just that. And then the county came through, and they cut all the ironwood, and there went the late season food. And it opened up too much sunlight by also the logging, and then it destroyed a lot of the, you know, hazel brush. Instead of the hazel brush growing up, growing up thick mm. and reaching for sunlight, it spread out, and the quality was gone. So interesting. Yeah, it's just things change. Yep. Yep. No doubt. All right. Now we're moving into a kind of a miscellaneous bunch of questions. And this question, I did try to get some more clarification from the person that asked, but I don't think I got a response. So we'll just, I'll kind of leave it open-ended. In your opinion, is there more timber harvest than normal? So I'm not really sure where he was referring to or what that means, but I don't know. Is there anything that you look at as far as, you know, volume of timber harvest or anything like that? Well, Okay. I don't think there's more than normal because right now in the markets, like the hardwood market is really bad. Um, so I know the last I knew Aspen was still good. and But you can't keep cutting Aspen, Aspen, Aspen because what happens is think about it for 16 years from now. Yeah, it'll be great. But then we're going to have a lack of Aspen in another, you know, it's like if you cut all your tomorrows today. Right. You need to spread it out. So, you know, there's that aspect too. But um, I think, like, I could just say that I'm seeing in some of the uh, federal land, I, I'm seeing cuts. County land, they're logging. You know, I'm seeing trucks all the time. And, you know, that's, that's for any place, it's a huge revenue for any county, you know, lands. And, you know, Minnesota and Wisconsin are the key ones. Then I think about county lands. And then as far as, you know, Michigan, the state, that's great revenue for them. But the thing to fear, really, is the lack of pulp mills in what's happening to that mm -hmm. industry. Yeah. 
that's very time sensitive and because the writing's on the wall that they need to be more sustainable. Um, and the problem is, is that like up in parts of Maine, they've had uh, a lot of their pulp companies have been uh, taken over by foreign investors. And the market is was in, they weren't far from the Quebec border. So uh, you don't want a lot of what Quebec does especially farther north, especially when you get north of Quebec City, that they plant a lot of pine. And Ontario plants a lot of pine. And so I've seen glimpses of this in part of Maine where you start to get a lot of timber harvesting. And if it, it's rocky soil again, so they're going in with the pine. And But if you need, I think they're cutting. There's less cutting on federal which we already know um they're not even cutting three percent the last time i checked the last time i checked the state and compared it to 20 to 40 years out they're still cutting as much as they were before hmm. um and the county is doing the same i mean it's all good um michigan and in minnesota do really well it took a while for pa to get their act together and i'll be blunt saying that because they let time lag um, state was good. The game commission had to go inventory their uh, what they had and build the database. And uh, but you could see when you looked at it because there wasn't as many cuts, and now they're getting more cuts, which is good. And it's it's a good income for the state. Uh, but the closer you get to the big cities out east, the more kickback you get from the groups that feel that cutting is bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For here, it's a way of life. So there's there's not much pressure, but you end up with a lot more pressure from people out east trying to hold up cutting. And that runs all the way down through the Appalachians. Yeah. So, you know, people are left to looking at the old wheat, mead, Westfaco lands and things like that, which I think now are Wirehauser out of the Greenbrier, Randolph, and those type of counties. And uh, some of the um, areas it's been too little too late, like Ohio and Indiana and Maryland, you know, those types of areas. Um, if you don't have habitat for them to move into, the birds will disappear. And the problem is once you get behind on it, it takes many years, many years and setbacks with weather and everything else to get yeah. the numbers back to where you used to be. Um, so yeah, in places they are doing more cutting, but the markets need to sort of turn around. This latest two years or so has weeded out a lot of loggers and with processors and you know quarter million plus dollar equipment and and all of that uh, because uh, it's been tight. A lot of people had to you know strap their belts in, so to speak, because the markets have been pretty rough. Yeah. So. I don't know if that answers what you want, but I mean, that's sort of and I'm not the best one for this synopsis of the future of, of cutting, right. but uh, even, you know, just one other quick thing is yeah. even when you look at the commercial forest land, the owners have changed a lot in not allowing the aspen to come back as much as to planting some pine because it's aesthetically pleasing. Hmm. I I think of uh, that. Was, I appreciate that. That was a good good summary. And and again, we'll 
hopefully that that hit on some somewhat of what the listener was asking but i think of our mutual friend forrest and i know he would have he would have much Mm -hmm. to say on on a topic like this i always enjoy talking to him about forests and the industry and yep yep all right so the next two questions are kind of um rain moisture related so we'll, we'll start with this one what are the moisture levels in northern wisconsin a lot of the state was very dry this summer but click on your link at the bottom there was this in was this in the video that you did with Steve Blazer? Is this that same resource? No, this is a new one for okay, you. Okay, a new one. Excellent, excellent. All right, we got a new link. I'm clicking on it. I'll, don't worry, listeners. A link will be in the show notes. This is the Vegetation Drought Response Index. Yep, veg dry. It's a cool process. Wow. So when you look at veg dry, this is going to let you know this map that we're looking at right now that. Uh, uh, Nick and I are looking at, you can see, like, just tap on, we'll tap on Minnesota. And then when you tap on Minnesota, now it opens up into a nice big map that shows where it's red, meaning extreme drought or severe drought, orange is moderate moderate drought, and where it's pre-drought stressed. And if it's white, it's near normal. So there's a lot of your answers for there. Pretty dry in Minnesota grouse country this year. Yep. And so back up again. Now let's go out to Maine. Yeah. And wow. What a contrast. You, okay. So there's a neat contrast there. Now let's uh, let's see what I can get here. Go to change maps. And let's go back to uh, the date on the first one on the left here. We're going to go back to, let's just say, uh, June 4th. Okay. 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 Oh. You can see where it was June 4th. That's hatch time. Yeah. You know, and then let's jump to uh, July 2nd. Nothing yet. So the birds are doing okay there. You know, you can see that. What, and this, can I stop you ahead. there for a second? So June, sure. four, June 4th, what do we want to see here? Kind of. See how it's almost white? Right. Kind of just normal. Right. Okay. It's normal. Yeah. Now go to where we were at. July 2nd was basically okay. Let's go to August 6th. Too bad yet, there. I'm not getting this right. I don't think. Well, I think actually, I think I had it on the last week, and I, that was kind of making sense because June 4th. So it's the date we're looking at the change in the last week, right? And and then as you get to August 20th or August 27th, then the color really starts to change. It really dried out. Yeah, and then you just you know, and then you can see where it was. You know, it's where it's wet now. When all this came, these birds were still pretty well long. Yeah. That's what it looks like. You yeah. know, they're big enough that they could move out of an area and then move, you know, into an area. Now, for out west, when it talks map type, let's just go to North Dakota. Then where it says that complete, let's look at rangeland. And then you get an idea about the rangeland. And then let's look at crops. There's your idea about the crops. So that's going to tell you about your moisture and whether they switch grazing areas. Well, which, what part was that in? How do, we, how do I find rangeland? Okay. okay, tap on North Dakota first. Okay, I got to go back to homepage. Okay, North Dakota. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then see over the tie, uh, on the right. Oh, yeah, there we go, rangeland and crops. Okay. Crops, yeah. You can start to get an analysis of. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just opened up Pandora's Ooh, box. I like this. <laughs> yeah, I know you'd like that. <laughs> Very cool. I got one person say, 
where have you been hiding this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it took six years to finally let Ann, have Ann cough this one up. <laughs> <laughs> so go back to the homepage again. Okay. And then here you got, again, map type. And go, you got to complete the Grisco yeah, Rangeland. Rangeland, yeah. There you are. Okay, and so I, so if I, when I click, I just want to understand when I click Rangeland, then the colors I'm seeing are are it's highlighted the Rangeland there. Everything that's grayed out is not yeah. Rangeland. Yep, that's yeah. right. Okay, all right, wonderful. This and is that, super so, cool. So you can see where it's white, things are pretty much normal. Yep. But then if you go to the crops, see. Yep. Things are still, you know, this is what I sort of, here's the thing. With rangeland, it has established root systems. Yeah. And they're going to be deeper than a crop's root system because it's had a shorter period of time to grow. Um, And they easily get stressed. So it's drawing from a moisture level farther down. And that's how you got to think about it. Now, the, the poorer the soil, the shorter the roots, though, which would be like your knolls. But if you've got, so if you've got to thinking about that, so rangeland, the, those sort of pasture grasses, what, what, I don't know mm-hmm. if they're, you'd call them native grass. I mean, I think some of them are native grasses. Those are very well adapted. They've got deeper root systems. They can draw water from, from a right. deeper level. So if you've got normal, near normal uh, drought conditions where you basically, you don't have a drought, those plants are going to be doing very well because they're, yeah. they're adapted to that space and they're not under very much stress at all. This is a neat map. Yeah, this is a really cool map. <laughs> <laughs> this was this was worth it just for this one, Ann. I love it. <laughs> oh well, uh, I mean that's the farming background. Yeah, you know, for me, uh, there's nothing I love more than to be. Besides hunting, I like running equipment, farming. I love it when you have a big combine, huge head on it, and you're going and doing soybeans or whatever. And, you know, back then I'd be doing that, and I'd have my lunch packed and everything. And, you know, we had like 30-foot heads. And you basically are running, I think it was 30. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think it was 30-foot heads. Um, but uh, you would have you'd have a Michigan, University of Michigan football game on, and you'd just be combining, the dust would be flying. And it was just really cool, just watching everything. And then at night, you know, as before the dew would set in, you'd have to, you know, you get too much dew, you can't combine. If you have a light wind that keeps yeah. the dew off, you know, you can continue to combine. But you could see the lights across the open areas and that. There's one over here, there's one over there. And, mm-hmm. You know, at dust, the, the sunlight would filter through that dust. It was also a pretty sunset. Yeah. All right, so along the same lines, and this map is probably perfect. Again, we we touched on it a little bit. The next question was from Maine, and the question uh, submitter said, "Extraordinarily wet year, hatches expected to be significantly impacted." And then he abbreviated WWAD. What would Ann do? I sh- I shot back at him. We were laughing about it because he's it was he was oh limited, my word <laughs> limited <laughs> now in there's the, acronyms. In the, yes, yes. Well, <laughs> What would Anne do? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but he—you can only type in so many characters. So he—he he said he had to abbreviate. <laughs> but so, and clearly, looking at this map, definitely there was more rain rainfall in Maine this year than Minnesota or Wisconsin. 
Um, have you heard anything out of there? Can we use this map to look at? Do we go and look at what it was like in June? I, I'm more I'm more worried about New Hampshire. Okay. And Vermont. Take a look at them. Extremely more. Yeah, there's some really dark, dark, deep greens on this map. There. So yep. that corridor where the river runs, it's like it's a low area in there, as low as in when everything's so tall, you know, with mountains, and then you got this this. Uh, you know, it's where all the industry is and the river runs through it type thing. And, sure. and, but it's, it's like a flat area that goes for quite a ways of a basin of type. And then it swells back up into the, into the mountains. You know, that's where a lot of that Aspen is and that other cutting areas that are basically maple as well. And so it's before, it's just as stuff is starting to flare up into the big mountains up through there. Yeah. Yeah, and in the case of this, I mean, again, going back to the question, you know, while I'm looking at this map, if I'm looking at Maine, which is where he asked, I mean, it's all right. rel- relatively similar. So at that point, you know, are you going to, if you're unless you're going to hop in your truck and drive to Michigan or Wisconsin or something, you're going to go hunt. But um, it's interesting to see. They definitely they definitely got more moisture out, out there this year mm-hmm. than we did here. Well, you could also do an animation you know, where it'll just, you can select the year, like 2023, oh, and yeah. you can see things happen over time. And it has a slide bar down at the bottom where it's like March 26th, April 2nd. Wow. And you really are able to see the changes and how they're affecting an area. And you can highlight where like the drought was coming into parts of northern Minnesota and in those areas. And then it fades out and it, and how everything changes. I wish you could, it doesn't look like you can pause it. I wish you could pause it at a certain spot, but yeah, this is really cool. You got the whole timeline of of the drought response index over the whole country on this one page. Yep. And you could even download the GIF and text it to your buddies. (laughs) This is so cool. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, veg dry. That is veg dry. I will put a link in the show notes for this one because listeners are going to love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to, especially those that want to go to Kansas or Nebraska, mm-hmm. um, you do that. And then, you know, we had a video on the drought response map and going yep. back in time. You got, you know, you can't just look at today. You got to look at when the event happened and think about what you're going to hunt and how long, you know, did the birds get established or didn't they? Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, that's the key is, is how much precipitation and when there's, mm-hmm. it's not just a, a quick snapshot, but this, this looks like a really, really valuable resource for doing some, some of that kind of analysis. Okay. Is Ann still going to release episodes of hunt for habitat? He thought it had been a while since the last one. I, I, I feel like the one with Steve, where you looked at the drought response, that was pretty recent. So maybe that was the yeah. latest video. We we did, and, and I apologize for the you know for the delay, but I have been doing map releases. So there's times in when you'll hear they'll be like, "What'd you do? Disappear?" Well, yeah, because <laughs> I'm getting maps ready for clients, doing something, else, and I'm getting yeah. dogs ready. You know, so that's where you know. And then there's other times that all of a sudden you're going to think, "Is she going to stop?" <laughs> yeah, it it goes. It mine. I don't make my living doing podcasts. It's only and and it's meant to be educational. I hope it helps people. Um, and 
I get to talk about what I love. And so that's, that's easy enough. And it's, I like to talk dog training. I like to talk this and eventually you will hear me have guests on there. You will hear other things, but I've got to take care of the business first. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, there is more coming and I will, I mean, it took me how many years to finally get up the nerve to do one? At least five. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there will be. Good. Good deal. All right. What I – lo- I love this one. You, you already saw it. I know. What is her favorite kind of pasty when she's in the UP? <laughs> in the UP. In the UP. <laughs> in the, the – well, there's to me, there's only the beef pasty. And my favorite type of pasty is basically one that's wrapped in foil and heated over the engine of a skitter. Oh, <laughs> nothing better than a warm, tasty meal after a, after a hard half day's work, right? Well, what it would do is I would have, and this is back when I was doing, like, I ran a log yard. I had, I had about 24 five guys that I worked with and I ran the Iron River District for Connors. So I literally would grab two of them and I could eat all the sweets I wanted at that time in life, which was pretty (laughs) cool. (laughs) But um, I would stop at different places and I'd make sure I'd hit it about close to lunchtime because then they would park the skitter when the skitter would be warm and it'd be 20 below out. But I'd, you know, jump in the truck with the guys and talk for a little bit. But I'd go over and slip the pasty in foil on top of the the engine of the, the skitter. <laughs> and I'd heat it up. <laughs> and that, and then, uh, you know, sometimes the guys get used to it. He says, and we just turned that skitter off. You can go put your sandwich over there. <laughs> you know, and we'd go over you know, what roads we're putting in or what we thought the yield was or whatever, how many trucks have come in and all this other stuff. But I really like pasties. Service. They were a stable when you um, basically don't like to cook. (laughs) You know, it was one of the big pluses of running logging crews up in in Michigan was there was pasties all over the place. (laughs) Go and get them to eat. That and smoked fish. Oh yeah, that's that's yeah, good. Yeah, it's good. We see a lot of that around the Great Lakes. But yeah, we mm-hmm. we even have pasties over here. It's, you know, some of the the churches will make them, and it's a Iron Range thing. You know, the miners would would right. e- eat them as well. So we, it's not uh, totally foreign to me, and I I enjoy them. I I love them. As it's well. a complete meal, practically. Yeah, yeah, it's everything in one. Very simplicity and uh, staple, as you said. Is there are there is like is there a place that if you're going through the UP, you always stop and grab one or anything come to mind? They're all over the UP. Yeah, right, right. I mean, they're all over the UP, and I don't have any particular place that you know I stop. I mean, there's you know I'm more. I mean, I like pasties and I like smoked fish. I mean, of course, there's this you know there's the, the two places up in. Uh, Bayfield for getting smoked fish yeah. up there, Bodine's, and they also have an outlet in Ashland. But then there's about two places up in the Keweenaw for getting fish, and I a lot of times pick up fish up there. So it's it's uh, and pasties are huge up up in that area. A um, lot of lot of lot of uh, Finlanders up there. Yes, yes, indeed. Yep. 
All right. I think we asked about the gun when we had you on last year, but I know you, you know, a lot of times you're guiding and you're not always carrying a gun, but, but if you are carrying a gun, what, what gun and ammo do you prefer when you're out in the grouse woods? Okay. I'm not, I have a really hard time, Nick, carrying a nice gun in the woods. Yeah. Cause I, I don't want to scratch it. <laughs> so all my guns are beaters. Okay. And it's not, some people, okay, let's put it this way. Some people love guns and that, and they love dogs equally. Guns and dogs and the whole thing. Me, it's dogs, you know, you know, I'll take a good dog, an average gun. And, you know, and basically we're looking at 20, 28s. And if I'm with young dogs, it's four tens. You know, so, and I'm not fancy about the ammo or anything like that. I, I couldn't, I'll shoot for the dog. I like to eat grouse, but when you're doing training, you don't want to use up your birds. Yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> you know, so that's where the philosophy of, pla- you know, practicing the layup uh, in training is basically, you know, uh, you can work, keep working these birds this way, that way, and as they become more difficult, that's only better for the future dog, you know, to learn that, you know, as it grows up. Yeah. So, I mean, I do hunt, but I won't hunt in my backyard. <laughs> yeah. That's understandable. <laughs> I'm saving them for the dogs. Because, you know, it's just, you know, you're going to lose some birds over wintertime, yep. you know, for sure. And, that, and you could lose even more based on what the hatch is. So you never know where you're at. I mean, I'll take a bird occasionally in the area, but I mean, once in a while you just have to, you know, clean up the genetics of the really dumb ones. <laughs> <laughs> oh. mm. All right. Good deal. Uh, scoutandhunt.com. Mm-hmm. Scoutandhunt.com for all the maps and information you've got. We mentioned the YouTube videos a little bit, the Hunt for Habitat podcast. Everybody check that out. And I don't know what else to say other than thank you once again. I, As many of the listeners do, I look forward to this every year. I said it before, and I'll say it again. This was a blast. I really enjoy our conversations, and, and I just I can't thank you enough, Ann. Well, thanks very much, Nick, for having me on. I know this is a, this is a long one. <laughs> this might become two parts. We'll have to, we'll have to see, but this will be out well when the grouse seasons are opened, and I know listeners will will definitely enjoy a lot of what they heard, and hopefully they're putting it to use in the woods, as I'm sure you are as well. Yep. Oh, yeah. Hope you have a great season, Nick. Right back at you, Ann. Thanks once again. That does it for this episode of the Bird Chat Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own 
Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.